Lord, we lay this time down before you again and ask that you would feed us on your good word and encourage us this morning. And in your name we pray, amen. To do a little bit of review, the last time that we were in Hebrews, we looked at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. We looked at this warning given to those who have had certain religious experiences but have fallen short of genuine faith. They're, they're described as having been enlightened, having tasted of the heavenly gift, having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasting the good word of God and the powers of age to come, and then falling away. And what's missing from this description is faith in Christ, repentance from sin, anything that would actually be genuine transformation. They've had these experiences. Uh, I didn't point it out when, when we were looking at it a few weeks ago, but th- these things are similar to what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. They were enlightened. The Lord sent Moses to them as his prophet. Moses went up on the mountain and came back with the word of God for them. They too tasted of the heavenly gift. They had a sense of what it would be like in God's economy, in God's kingdom. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there were miracles performed among them on a, on a near constant basis. Food, well, certainly daily food falling from heaven for them, water from rocks, their clothes didn't wear out. Uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating time. Uh, They'd tasted the good word of God. It wasn't just Moses coming down and saying, God has spoken to me, but Moses coming down and saying, here's what God has said. And not just the Ten Commandments, we can forget that. Moses uh, received the fullness of the law, Uh, all of the, the, uh, the revelation of what happened during creation and during the flood and all the way through the, the, uh, the Exodus account uh, into the book of Leviticus and how the priesthood would function and the book of Numbers and then eventually in Deuteronomy with the, the second generation. And they tasted the powers of the age to come. Yahweh was their king. He was leading them by day and by night. He defended them from their enemies. He promised them victory if they would follow him in, in faith. But with those people in the wilderness, while they were delivered out of Egypt, they were not delivered into the promised land. They did have some experiences, but those experiences weren't enough to bring them into the promise of God. Now, I really don't know whether or not all of those who died in the wilderness uh, perished eternally. I don't know if that's what we're being told or if it was simply insufficient for them to go into the land. Certainly Moses didn't perish eternally. Aaron didn't. Uh, Miriam didn't. So there, there had to have been those who were faithful, who believed for salvation, but didn't believe for the promise. But the point being made in Hebrews 6 is that it is salvation now. It's not some lesser goal that we have. It's salvation. And he says the people who have had these experiences and then have fallen away are, are going to be eternally condemned. They cannot be renewed to repentance some of, the, some of the recipients of this letter, to begin with, were genuine believers in Jesus, who were Jews who had turned away from the temple and its practices, who had believed that Jesus fulfilled the law. They were gathering, as we're gathered this morning, in a, in a small group. Uh, it was not a, the, the big 
spectacle of the temple and, and the details of those sacrifices. It was something much smaller. And, and because they got bored, because they got tired, because of persecution or oppression, they were being tempted to go back. Others were simply false believers, like those who had been delivered out of Egypt but not into the Promised Land. And they were in danger of actually committing the, the kind of apostasy from which there is, is no return. And it, it struck me as I was thinking about this message that false converts rarely seem to think about their salvation. They, they go to church, they do what they're going to do, but they, uh, they, they simply don't give much time to a life in Christ. And that's why it's impossible to renew them to repentance. When they've, once they've come in and the, the enthusiasm is gone and the excitement is gone and they've turned away, they simply don't care anymore. They've moved on to something else. But that's not true about genuine believers. Genuine believers care about their relationship with Christ and are concerned about their relationship with Christ and can often fall into this kind of fear, especially reading a passage like this, of, of thinking, am I close to this? Have I done this? Am I falling away so that it would be impossible to renew me to repentance? Um, the most obvious answer is that anybody who's concerned about it hasn't because they are willing to repent. Their hearts are tender toward the Lord. But those Christians reading the letter, and for us who think about our security and yet wonder, need more assurance than wait till you die to find out. And so he goes on to provide some assurance in the rest of the chapter. We're just going to look at verses 9 through 12 this morning. He says, There, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now he talks about better things. He says, we are convinced of better things concerning you. That is, he says, we're convinced that you are not falling away to a point where it's impossible to renew you to repentance. And not only are we convinced of those better things, we are convinced that there is the evidence in your life that shows that you're born again. It's the things that accompany salvation. It's such an important thing. The Word of God regularly reminds us that we are saved by grace, through faith, not by works, that anybody should boast, that faith itself is a gift of God, that God chooses, the Holy Spirit works, comes in and works powerfully, rebirths people, grants them eternal life, grants them faith, grants them perseverance by his power, not because of our works, because of his power. And we come across that idea frequently in the New Testament because we forget it frequently. Because it's easy as we live our lives, as we go through the, the day by day by day by day by day, where, where things are just kind of part of a pattern. You get up and your day is largely the same. 
And uh, you, you go to bed and you look back at your day and you think, well, I did what I did on Sundays. I did what I did on Thursdays or on Tuesdays. It, it's easy to, in the, those moments to start thinking that we are saved because we did something. Or that we stay saved because we are doing something. And that, that's the nature of every false gospel. Every false gospel, although they differ widely, has at least one thing in common. You, the sinner, must do something in order to activate this passive salvation that God has for you. And so Hebrews 6, 9 is very important. He says, we're convinced of better things concerning you. We are convinced that your lives evidence the things that accompany salvation. Salvation doesn't accompany good works. Good works accompany salvation. They go hand in hand with salvation and they follow salvation. And so he says, we're convinced for you. Why are they convinced? Well, there's two reasons. The first is confidence in God. Look at verse 10. He says, God is not is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Now, it, it kind of sounds like his, that sounded like a head on the wall, actually. Uh, it, it kind of sounds like what he's saying is we are primarily convinced because of the things you do. But notice how he begins. We are convinced for God is not unjust. We are convinced of these things and things that accompany salvation for you because God is not unjust. God has made a promise to you regarding your salvation. So we see in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. <coughs> we see in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you so that you will and work for his good pleasure. That is, it's impossible for a sinner to change their heart and their will so that they desire the things that please God. And it's impossible for the sinner to actually live in a way that pleases God. It is God at work in you when you're desiring to please him. It is God who is at work in you when you are learning to please him and actually living in a way that pleases him. That's because of what God has done. In 1 Thessalonians 5, there's this wonderful statement, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. God calls us to eternal life. He calls us to salvation through faith in Jesus and he brings it to pass. So we're not saved because of what we've done we're saved because God is a Savior. And salvation, though, is not simply having a guaranteed ticket to heaven. It's not having your, reserv your reservation assured. It's, it's not knowing that there's a place waiting and you made that phone call 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago by praying a prayer. And now it doesn't matter what your life looks like. The reservation is waiting. Salvation is conversion. Salvation is transformation. So verse 10 speaks about your love, your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and ministering to the saints. These are the results. These are the results. They are the work that accompanies salvation and the love that accompanies salvation and the ministry, the service 
that accompanies salvation. In terms of the work, uh, this isn't referring to any specific good works. This is the energy of your life and you living your life in such a way that Jesus Christ is your Savior and, and your Lord. And it's evident from how you conduct yourself and from what you do. It's going to be different on a day-by-day basis. It'll be different for some of us widely from, from somebody else. But every, you know, every day that I get up, I am Linda's husband, and I'm mom's son, and I'm Kevin and Sarah and Grace's dad and Elliot's dad, basically, and the grandkids' papa. I am those things every day. I went almost 22 years without thinking of grace a dozen times a day. She was just there. I didn't need to think about her. But the last 10, 12 days, I think about her all day. I think about her all day. Why? Well, because my heart is drawn to her and I miss her. Well, in our relationship with Christ, there are going to be times when you're thinking about him a little bit today. And then something comes up. It's good news. It's bad news. And all of a sudden, you're drawn to him because he's your Savior. You're drawn to him because he's your Lord. And this, too, is the work of the Lord. Ezekiel gives us the, the new covenant. The Lord says there, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Notice this, my spirit, my statutes, my ordinances. The Holy Spirit is given to us specifically so that we can live in a way that pleases God. It's the only way that somebody can live according to the word of God is if they have been born again and filled with the spirit according to the promise that God has made. We see too that love accompanies salvation. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. This is another thing that we see regularly in scripture. We need the reminder that love is not a feeling. Love is what we do. Love is an action. So love is shown. Love is demonstrated. Love is made visible. Love is something that can be measured. Biblical love is never an attitude. It's always what we do. It might be driven by affection, and it might be accompanied by affection, but ultimately love is what we do. And God himself is the example of this, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you notice there, God demonstrates Christ died. Those are actions. They're things that God did as actions of his love. So true love toward God is is shown, it's demonstrated, and it's visible. So how do we show our love for God? Now, I'm just going to kind of step out of the message for a moment and speak about the way we come to the Word. We see this in, in our, I see this in my own study. I see this with others. I see it in Bible studies I'm involved with. You ask a question like this, how do we show our love for God? And, and people kind of at least figuratively look up and they start imagining. Well, the text tells us. We don't have to imagine. We don't have to look up and wonder, how do I do this? The text tells us. Look back at verse 10. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So service accompanies salvation. How do we demonstrate our love for God? 
we, we serve his people. We serve his people. That's what we're given here. Now, we can also pray, study his word, commit ourselves to obedience, want to know him. But here, the example given to us is serving. This word ministering is not a religious word. In the United States, we, we don't have ministries in the government. We have uh, departments and cabinet positions. So we have the Department of War and the Department of Defense and the Department of Housing and Human Development. In England, you would have the Ministry of War or the Ministry of, of Health. We use the word ministry in the United States almost in, entirely in a religious context. But this word service simply means to serve. It might mean to make food or to deliver food or to give somebody food. It might, be, it might be giving financially to somebody. It might be meeting the needs of somebody. It might simply mean using your gifts for the benefit of others. It's an act that you do on behalf of someone else. And the recipients of this letter had a history He says they have been ministering and you've shown your love in having ministered. And they also have the habit and in still ministering. They had the history of having ministered. They had the habit of still ministering to the saints. So service accompanies salvation. And he says, I can see this in you. And he's already connected it to God and the work of conversion and the work of transformation. He's saying, I see this in you. These are things that only God can produce in the life of a sinner. And it's only through, through rebirth. And that evidence becomes a source of great encouragement and confirmation. Now, it's worth saying that this is ministry to the saints. Galatians 6 says this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Should we do good to all? Yes. But the church has priority. That's what especially to those of the household of the faith means. We do good to all, but, but the priority is the church. This is exactly what we do in our families. This is exactly what we do in our families. In my life, my wife comes before anybody else's wife. My children come before anybody else's children. My family comes before anybody else's family. And we're all like that. That's how God designed us. He designed us in these, these little scalable, reproducible units that are pictures of Christ's relationship to the church in multiple ways. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the Lord says, do good especially to those who are of the household of God. The author says we're convinced of better things. We're convinced of the things that accompany salvation because, first of all, God is faithful. And second, because God is faithful, your life actually evidences your salvation. So, in, in a sense, the author could have just ended at verse 10. And you've got these believers who've just heard this, this rebuke, this warning, who are saying, but I'm, now I'm scared, now I'm anxious, what about me? And, and the author says, don't worry about it. I'm confident. But he doesn't want that for them. He doesn't want them to bank on his confidence. 
He wants them to have a growing assurance of their own. And so he describes that process in the next couple of verses. He says, I want you to be diligent. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These words are written to each one of us. They're not written to super Christians. They're not written to pastors or elders. They're written to every Christian, boys and girls, men and women, old people, young people, married, single. It doesn't matter if you call upon Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, these words are given to you. And he says, I want you to be diligent. I want you to live with eagerness and enthusiasm for these things, for Jesus Christ. I want you to long to know him better. I want you to long to be like him. I want you to long to be with him. Now, the, the people receiving this letter, he's no longer talking to the false converts. He's talking to the genuine believers who are really suffering. And they're, they're suffering under Nero, very likely. What they're suffering is, is uh, even worse, if it can be possible, it's even worse than our brothers and sisters in Chengdu, China, are enduring right now, although it's getting bad there very quickly. There's public torture taking place. There's public crucifixions of Christians taking place. Not only do they have the opposition from the the Roman authorities, they've got opposition from the Jewish authorities. And when the Roman authorities come hunting them and come looking for them and they're looking for some place to hide, for some place to be where they're safe, the Jews turn them away. And they're utterly exposed. And so, quite naturally, many of them are saying, we need to find a safe place. This pastor in in China, Pastor Wong, he wrote this incredibly powerful statement on his faithfulness and his, his commitment to Jesus Christ and the Lordship of Christ and his love for the Chinese people and his love for those in, in government. His desire that those who are even torturing him would hear the gospel because they're torturing him. He's a remarkable, remarkable man. He has to live it out, though. And with the arrest of his wife, that adds a level of pressure. Fox's Book of Martyrs records the the execution of of quite a number of people through the the history of the church, mainly in uh, in Europe during the later Middle Ages and, and the... Uh, early part of the Reformation. But there are times mentioned where a, uh, a, a man and his wife and his children are going to be executed for their faith. And the authorities being motivated by Satan begin with the children and then move to the wife and make this man watch and listen before he himself dies. And so when you're facing that kind of struggle, that kind of battle, that kind of difficulty, how do you hang on? How do you face the hardships and pain, the oppressions and the conflicts that seem to be just never-ending for us? It can seem that nothing is easy or simple or straightforward as a Christian. And that's true. If you want simple and straightforward and easy, stop being a Christian and go back to being a sinner. 
They had it simple and straightforward and easy. They just did whatever their little old hearts desired. But now we're caught into this this battle, and as long as we're in this sinful flesh, the natural way of things will always be towards sin and faithfulness. So he wants these believers to grow stronger in their faith and to not do what their ancestors did and shrink back because of unbelief and fail to enter in because of unbelief. And so he says this, I desire that each one of you show the same diligence that you have been showing, but even increased it, an increased eagerness, an increased enthusiasm for the Lord, so that you experience greater assurance, so that you experience greater assurance. If we stop climbing a hill, we'll slide back down. If we stop our diligence as Christians, we will grow apathetic. That's the the whole concept of backsliding, is that we must keep advancing. Uh, We kind of want to think about our our Christian growth as being like, like education. Whether you've got junior high or high school or a couple years of college or a bachelor's, or graduate school or postgraduate school, it doesn't matter. You kind of earn your education, then you stop, and for the rest of your life, that is your educational status. But diligence isn't like your education. Diligence is like breathing. You can't say, well, I've been breathing all this time, so it's time for me to stop breathing, and I'll just live on what I've breathed over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Everything grinds to a halt pretty quickly if you do that. If we cease being diligent, we won't remain where we are. We will slip into complacency and apathy. We'll become sluggish, is his word here. And if we do that, then we begin to imitate those who were not able to enter in because of their unbelief. See, this whole passage really began in chapter 3 when he says therefore holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession when he says in chapter 4 therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest any one of you may seem to have come short of it when he says again so there remains a sabbath rest for the people of God When he says we need to move on beyond the elementary teachings about the Christ in chapter 6, let us press on to maturity. We, we need to keep advancing or we will fall back. That's not the people we want to imitate. The, the people that we want to imitate are those in verse 12 who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Patience here is the word macrothumia. It's the word long-suffering. It means endurance. It doesn't mean patience, as, as in I'm, I'm trying to remain patient until grace's graduation. It means suffering. It means long-suffering. It means endurance. When you'd rather be doing anything else. Diligence increases our assurance. Insur- uh, insurance. Diligence increases our assurance. That assurance increases our ability to remain faithful and patient. 
as we claim the promises of God for eternity. Who are those we're supposed to imitate? Well, Abraham is, is one. He's mentioned in the next verse. Uh, chapter 11 mentions quite a few more, many of them by name. They're, they're often called heroes of the faith. Chap- Hebrews chapter 11 sometimes called the hall of faith. Here's these men like Abraham and Moses and women like Sarah and, and Rahab and, and these, these giants of the faith. But most of the people who are mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, and, and there are countless people mentioned in Hebrews 11, toward the end of the, the chapter it speaks about men and women who are nameless and anonymous, but who are unworthy or of whom the world is unworthy because their faith was in Jesus Christ and they wouldn't turn aside. See, that's who we're, we're called to imitate so the, the Apostle says this, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, that's the momentary light affliction, but at the things which are not seen, that's the eternal weight of glory. For the things which are seen, the momentary light affliction, are temporary. They're temporal. They're only going to last as long as we last. But the things which are not seen, the eternal weight of glory, are eternal because they last as long as God lasts. It's fascinating to me, he says, that this is beyond all comparison, but he gives us a direct comparison. The things of the world are momentary. The things of eternity are eternal. The things of the world, even the sufferings of the world, are light. But the glory to come is weighty. And what we receive now is largely affliction. But what's coming is pure, unadulterated, uncontaminated glory. Diligence in our faith and walk brings greater assurance and that protects us against sluggishness and faithfulness and enables us to realize the full assurance of hope until the end as we imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is all about digging in and doubling down and when we're tired saying, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to lay my heart down before the Lord, I'm going to keep going because he has a purpose, because he's bringing me home. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, for your goodness to us and your graciousness to us. Lord, some are very tired. Their hearts are very heavy. And I ask that you would encourage them today. I ask that you would lift them up, that you would do your work to grant them the diligence and the faithfulness that brings about greater assurance so that they wouldn't backslide, they wouldn't fall back, they wouldn't become trapped in uh, even a partial unbelief. We don't say those things lightly. We don't say those things as, as though it's easy to do. We say those things recognizing that this life has a cost and it seems sometimes to get harder as we go. You have set out for us an eternal weight of glory. And you've promised it 
to us as part of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so we commit ourselves to you as we love one another, as we serve one another and strengthen one another. And we thank you for your goodness to us and the promise that you have made. And Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.